I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 64, The Brookdale Lodge. This is something of a special installment, as I have recordings of people who have had their own weird experiences at our featured spot, and those are part of this episode. But first, let me set the scene and tell you about the haunted Brookdale Lodge. The Brookdale Lodge is located on Highway 9 in the town of Brookdale in the mountains of Santa Cruz County. In addition to a hotel, the lodge boasts a beautiful restaurant known as the Brook Room, which is built on top of a natural creek, and the floor of the restaurant has been built so that the creek bed is visible running through it. What follows is one of many variations on the story that you will hear from locals or find online. We'll talk about the known facts and also what is unknown in the commentary. The lodge began as the headquarters of the local lumber company in the 1890s. It passed through many different owners, many of whom expanded the existing buildings and added new ones, and has been a hotel, a resort, and currently is both a restaurant and a hotel. During the 1920s through the 1940s, it was a hotspot resort known to the music world through three different swing era songs and seen as a popular vacation spot for the wealthy. Over time, the lodge fell into disrepair, but has been somewhat rehabilitated. Today, it is a local music spot, but no longer a prime resort. The most famous ghost of the Brookdale Lodge is that of a little girl. Around 1900, a previous owner, J.H. Logan, had a young daughter, or in some tellings, a niece, named Sarah, who fell into the creek in the brook room, was knocked unconscious, and drowned. Visitors report seeing and even talking to a little girl who matches her description, but who vanishes mysteriously as soon as the person interacting with her looks away. Sarah's ghost is said to appear throughout the building that contains the Brook Room, and encounters with her are reported in the Brook Room itself, the bar, the lobby, and, even occasionally, in the outdoor spaces surrounding the building. Sometimes she appears looking like a real-world child while other times only her shadow is seen. Sometimes she is heard but not seen, and other times people report feeling touches from a child's hand but not seeing a child nearby. Within the same building is a lounge known as the Mermaid Room, which is attached to the bar. This lounge contains an entire wall composed of a thick sheet of glass that looks into the hotel's swimming pool. Some of the materials I read suggested that there would be swimming shows people could watch from here, and other materials I read suggested that this was a popular place for men to gather and have a drink while watching women swimming. So, you know, not skeezy at all. Within this room, people have reported hearing voices and the sounds of clinking glasses, as if there is a spectral party taking place. When I last visited the Brookdale Lodge in 2010, the room was a mess. The lighting had failed and water from a rainstorm had flooded in, 
The mermaid room was the creepiest room of the hotel for us, and I, along with the folks I was with, kept expecting a corpse to bump up against the window to the pool. According to writer and paranormal investigator Aubrey Graves' book on the lodge, even when the mermaid room is clearly empty, it doesn't feel that way, and this is certainly consistent with my own experience there. Some people have reported seeing a man drinking in the mermaid room after closing time, although I can say from direct experience that it's not actually that hard to get into the room after closing time, so that might have been a normal person. Weirder are the reports of people hearing and also seeing tables and chairs move on their own. To add a bit more local lore, the mermaid room is said to have contained a hidden entrance to tunnels underneath the lodge, tunnels used by mobsters in the commission of crimes, including some violent murders. More generally, throughout the hotel, the sounds of slamming doors and footsteps in empty rooms have been reported. Per Aubrey Graves, local psychics have stated that there are 49 spirits haunting the grounds, though only a portion of them are clearly identified. Obviously, one of these 49 is Sarah, but J.H. Logan is also said to make appearances at the lodge, both as an apparition and as a force that causes electrical equipment to malfunction. Celebrity psychic Sylvia Brown claimed to have tried to have a conversation with the spirit of Logan, but claimed that he simply just became annoyed with her and did not want to speak. Can't say that I blame him. I wouldn't want to speak to Sylvia Brown either. Another ghost said to haunt the grounds is a woman named Maria, who may be the mother of Sarah Logan, who is forever looking for her lost daughter and who smells of gardenias. She is often seen on the balcony and walking across the bridge in the brook room. Local lore also tells of a 13-year-old girl who drowned in the pool in the 1970s, and sometimes her ghost manifests as either a body floating face down in the pool or as an apparition in the mermaid room. She is frightening when she appears there, her appearance being a girl with water from her wet hair dripping over her face, standing still and staring. Local legends hold that mobsters from San Francisco would come to the Brookdale Lodge when they wanted to lay low for a while or conduct their business in secret. After all, with the lodge as isolated as it is, law enforcement officials were supposedly rarely seen in the area. Rumors of bodies buried under the floor, murders committed in a walk-in refrigerator, and tunnels underneath the hotel that were specifically built and used for crimes are all common parts of the local folklore. Visitors claim to have heard voices and scratching along the exterior walls of the hotel, and it has been claimed that these are the actions of the ghosts of mobsters or their victims. Other, less ominous, voices and laughter are claimed to be the residue of the lodge's good times as a resort. Room 46 is reputed to be the most haunted location within the lodge, as put in a page on MontereyBay.org's website, quote, in the 1970s, a wing of motel rooms was built over the spot where once stood the lodge's camping cabins. Room 46 of the motel wing is reported to be very haunted. A woman who worked at the lodge in exchange for lodging has reported that at night, objects and shapes would fly across the room. Ghostly ballroom dancers would swirl around, leering as they floated by. Ghosts would materialize around her bed. Their faces sometimes vague and sometimes very, very clear. One of the ghosts was a little boy, perhaps 12 or 13 years old. Another was a man with his eye hanging loose on his cheek. And still another was a man with a knife wound across his face. 
Not all of her experiences in room 46 were visual. She also reports that once she felt somebody sit on the edge of her bed and stroke her arm, unquote. And that brings us to the recordings of others who have had strange experiences at the Brookdale. Both of these guests were, like me, attendees at a horror tabletop role-playing game mini-convention that took place for a couple of years at the Brookdale Lodge. The mini-con still occurs, just at a different haunted hotel now. And both of these individuals had their own encounters with the weird. I would like to set the scene, though. It was December of 2009, and it was stormy and cold. Between 30 and 40 tabletop role-playing game players were gathered in this allegedly haunted hotel. At the time, it was actively falling apart, and at one point, both the lights and the heating went out, which actually added to the atmosphere and was kinda neat. We were all engaged in creepy fun, using the games to concoct macabre stories. Two of the attendees had weird experiences during all of this, but I'm going to let them tell you their stories in their own words. The first person I would like you to hear from is Badger McGinnis. Hello, my name is Badger McInnes. Here is my story of my experience at the Brookdale. My wife at the time and I uh, checked into our hotel room, I think it was Friday afternoon, and it was in this this kind of wing of the Brookdale that was detached from the main area. So like you had the main Brookdale, and then there was a swimming pool, and then you had our, our part of the uh, the hotel itself. When we got to the hotel room, we started to check it out because it looked pretty run down as, as it was. And we quickly discovered things like there was mold and, and some of the fixtures weren't great. We should probably say that this was, what, uh, 15, 16 years ago at this point? That sounds about right, yeah. And, and it's changed ownership. So if anybody's considering staying there and they're hearing this, be aware that it's probably different conditions now. <laughs> The last time I talked to Matt Steele, who runs the Dead of Winter Con, he said that the Brookdale was still being renovated. Okay. Only like a couple of main rooms were available. I don't know if the wing that we stayed in even exists anymore. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it had gotten torn down because it was really dilapidated and not in good shape. So when I discovered that one of the power outlets uh, in a wall uh, had scorch marks next to it. That was when we decided we needed to get another room because we didn't want ours to catch fire and die on the first night. So we went back to the main desk and explained everything. And they said, okay, well, here's another room for you. So we got that room that looked a lot better. It was on the second floor, whereas the initial room was on the first. So my wife and I were, were getting ready and she's an avid or was anyway, an avid ghost hunter. So she like sprints off after gathering her equipment and goes off to another part of the hotel. And I'm sitting in the room because I have some time to, to chill. And I'm sitting at the uh, edge of the bed. And in front of me is uh, the hotel room's television. Off to my right is the balcony with uh, the door closed. Uh, and the TV was off. And I'm sitting there with my phone, I think at this time, this period, it was like, what, an iPhone 3 or maybe one of the uh, original ones. So, you know, not a lot of functionality. And I think the the Wi-Fi there was pretty bad. 
Anyway, I'm on my phone and I'm not doing anything that would play any sort of sounds. My wife is gone, can't hear anything. And all of a sudden, back into my right, I hear the distinct sound of a uh, a young woman gasping. Like <gasps> the voice sounded like a woman in her late teens or early 20s. It was very distinct. So I turn and look. I don't see anything except for this really old uh, high-backed wing chair and a lamp. So I go over there and I don't see anything. I don't feel any cold spots. I don't hear anything else. I stand there and wait. I don't hear anything again. I go out to the to the balcony to see if perhaps the sound had emanated from outside somewhere because across the pool, there's another wing of hotel rooms. So I open the sliding glass door and I go out onto the balcony. And while I can see some of the hotel rooms across from the pool are occupied, nobody is outside. I go back in. I'm not scared at this point. I don't have any odd feelings or anything. I was more curious than anything else. And, and I'm thinking, I know I heard what I heard. I wonder if I can get it to happen again. So I sit down on the bed in the same position. I even get my phone out but it never happens again. That was pretty much it. An interesting anecdote is that when we went back down to the, the front desk the next day, you know, just to tell them that, yeah, we're, we're fine with the room and, and whatever. I think by this time I had started telling everybody about the uh, experience that I had. And I believe it was Matt who was also standing near the front desk. It was either he or the... Uh, woman behind the counter who said oh yeah well that's the most haunted hotel room in the entire <laughs> complex like well great well <laughs> that that figures it never happened again didn't have any other sorts of odd occurrences in the room but i heard that voice it's clear as day it was back into my i can still i can still hear it in my head and just a short distance away you know there's that chair so i, I don't know if there was something there. Maybe it had a connection to that area of that particular hotel room. I don't know. I should uh, say for listeners that we were both there to attend a uh, small gaming horror con. Correct. Matt was the organizer. So it was the other Matt, just so listeners right. know uh, that it wasn't me by the desk. Was that the year that we had that massive storm come through while we were there? Yep, where the power went out and all of us had to game by firelight or by candlelight at our tables, yes. Which would have been a disaster for any other event, but somehow it was just perfect for that. It, it, it absolutely was, yeah. Have you had any other experiences anywhere else, or was that the only experience of this type that you've had? I'm not sure I could describe it as an experience, but there were there was at least one time when... So I live in the city of Alameda. And at the Naval Station, we have the USS Hornet, which is also... I've interviewed the historian who is one of the curators of the Hornet. Yeah. Yeah. The the Hornet is plagued with all sorts of ghost stories throughout the, the decades. And I remember being there with the same ex-wife and we were taking a tour of the place. I, I, I don't remember what, what deck and what room we were in, but... There was a hatch that was open that led to uh, another deck below, and that was that, that was cordoned off. 
and it was dark. And I remember looking down the metal staircase to, to lead to the lower deck. And I just got overwhelmed with the feeling of that is a bad place hmm. and I need to stay away from it. And as soon as I walked away, it was gone, but it, it, it was really strong. It's interesting because I, I've met a lot of people who will tell me that they've had all of these wild experiences. And as they begin describing them, I just kind of left thinking, did you have these experiences or do you just like telling stories? But you've basically had one experience in one place where you felt something weird and that's it. So, yeah, you know, you're, you're clearly not somebody who's just telling stories for the sake of telling stories. No. And I don't go out searching for these stories either. Right. Like, like my ex-wife who you know was, did multiple tours of uh, the Hornet and other places. It just manifested. And out of curiosity, you say your ex-wife grabbed some equipment and went wandering the hotel. Did she come across anything that you can recall? No. Okay. So <laughs> the person who wasn't looking. <laughs> yeah. It's like the cat. They always go to the one who doesn't want them. <laughs> yeah. Or the one who's most allergic. Right. Badger's experience is interesting to me in that his wife was out looking for ghosts, but was disappointed, while Badger was just there for the gaming and had an unnerving experience. While it doesn't necessarily convince me that ghosts are present, based on what I have learned about Badger over the years of our acquaintance, I think that he is relaying his actual experiences to me as accurately as he can. Those with an interest in doing so can certainly try to sort out possibly non-ghostly causes for the event. But that doesn't change that I believe that he is trying to honestly relay what he experienced. The next recording is from Matt Grau. With me on the line is Matthew Grau, so yet another Matt, who is another fellow attendee of the uh, 2009 Dead of Winter Gaming Con at the Brookdale Lodge. And he had some odd experiences while he was there. And Matt, if you'd be so good as to tell us what it is that you saw or experienced. Well, sure. I was at the Brookdale Lodge two years. During those two years, the hotel was in a great degree of disrepair. Yeah, I recall water coming down through the roof every time it rained. Oh, and the, the long power outages <laughs> and the buckets on the floor to catch the to catch the water right next to open electrical wires. You know, it was a survival experience just on its own with the weather, the dilapidation and the various OSHA hazards that had going on in the place at the time. I remember our fingers going numb at various points just because the uh, room we were in was so cold. Well, that was also because the initial, the, the giant fireplace they had, initially when we got it fired up, it backdrafted so bad, we all had to play below our tables. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and yeah. we'd opened up the one door and it was so cold, <laughs> yeah. trying to get it out. And so we're in there wearing our army jackets and mittens and everything, trying to roll dice. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, there were a couple of years there where it was honestly a survival experience as much as it was a gaming convention. And I loved it for that. The funny thing is, I remember one of those years, I think it was because I was there, it's both 2009 and 2010 that it was at the Brookdale's, I recall. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of those years, we had a long power outage, as you say, and we all ended up using battery powered lanterns or candles at our table to play by. Yeah. And then the power came back on 
And we all decided that we were having more fun with the lanterns and the candles, so we turned the lights back off. No, because there was that one night that the power did not come back. Because I remember traveling back to people's rooms and saying hi and good night and everything, and no one had power. But there was definitely one of them where we were like, nah, just leave the lights off. We're good. (laughs) We're already set up. And the light from that massive fireplace that they had in that room. So there are so many parts of the Brookdale that are fascinating, right? Like the, the room that we were off was the, the Brook Room, right? Right. They, uh, the Brook Room is like three stories tall. Mm-hmm. It's this beautiful area with terraces where the Brook runs right down the middle of it. And of course, you know, despite the dilapidation of the hotel, the Brook was still running. Mm-hmm. There was, oh, it was, I mean, it was obviously late, right? Because our games get done at like one. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that in the dark kept us all going was that that there was a lot of drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, that was all good. And so when the night let out, we were all like, all right, let's go check things out. And so in the brick room, there hadn't been a lot of exploration at that point. And myself and a couple others ended up going up the various staircases and discovering, you know, bathrooms that had been filled with junk and, you know, tables stored in weird places. It was just like wherever there was an alcove going up, people had thrown crap in at some point. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not the only ones around. You know, of course, people like Badger are running around. You know, it was myself and Mike Muldoon and Kristen. And, you know, we kept walking up just because the fun of discovering the level of dilapidation at the hotel was was pretty awesome very much an urban exploration kind of thing oh yeah i mean our room had a full-sized hole in it that allowed us to walk into the next room in it and that was a hotel room (laughs) right we could just poke our heads through there and go anybody in there no okay all right good i i didn't know about that but that does not surprise me and so we eventually make our way all the way to the top, right? And the top is a, you know, it has a full cross over the brook. It comes down to both stairs down either side. And it's it had a fair amount of, of junk around it and whatnot. But this apparently is part of the Brookdale Lodge, where in fact, one of the people who apparently, you know, like worked there, was the wife of someone who worked there, had actually committed suicide by jumping off of it. Right. Or at least that's what I was led to believe in the lore of the Brookdale Lodge. And as we got closer to the top, I started feeling kind of funny. Right. Like the hairs in the back of my head neck started standing up and all of that stuff. And I'm like, all right, this is just me. Have I had a day of gaming and horror and a couple too many drinks for this to make sense? Well, I wasn't that drunk and the games that day weren't scary. <laughs> so. I made my way up there with my friends and my buddy Mike Muldoon was determined to actually pee off the balcony into the brook. brook, That sounds like him. Which I personally thought was an admirable pursuit at this point and uh, supported him in that. And we got up to the top and that's when my desire to go further ended. I approached the top of the stairs and I could just feel it, right? Like there was something that was not right Right. That 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 feeling that mammals get when something is awry in their environment, but they're not entirely sure what it is. I got that feeling. And we got to the top and Mike starts to make his way over there. And I swear I saw a shadow that looked like somebody looking over the bridge or looking over the edge. Right. You know, it, it was just there for a minute. 
And uh, Mike's like, all right, I'm going to go take my position. And I'm like, Fuck you, I'm not going there. And he's like, what? I'm like, nope, I'm done. And I literally turned around and started walking back down because the sensation of something being wrong combined with dread was enough to make at least my survival instinct want to turn around and go the other direction. I think Mike had a little more, you know, Johnny Walker courage going through his bloodstream. So he was all like, nah. And Kristen was like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, oh, something's going on and left herself. Now, that was one of the most memorable moments that I had at the Brookdale Lodge that involved something feeling ghostly, spiritual, you know, from beyond. Mm -hmm. And that didn't really end. I mean, even during the daytime, that place feels wrong. Uh, if you remember those years, we had to go into the, you know, we had to cross the Brook, Brook Room to go to the shared bathrooms. Yes. And there was zero light because there was no power whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And of course, being men, we don't go to the bathroom in groups, right? Right. You know, the ladies are like, hey, come with me. And it's all cool. The guys don't turn to their friends and say, oh, yeah, come with me. I need to pee. I remember being back in some of those dark corners and really feeling like something was keeping an eye on me as I was. Now, I mean, the idea of somebody keeping an eye on you while you're peeing is off-putting enough, but... You know, imagine something that you can't quite see that's making you feel really uncomfortable in all of that. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting. And it wasn't long. I think it was that same night that Badger had his experience. Mm -hmm. And we all sort of rallied the next morning. And he was like, whoa, something happened last night. And I was like, whoa, we had something happen last night. Now, did I have anything happen in my room? No, my room was pretty safe, right? All the atrocities that were unleashed in my room were unleashed by me and Mike. <laughs> but it was definitely in the public spaces, mm -hmm. right? Now, I never went back to that fridge, right? The freezer that the mob used to torture and kill people in. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Because it always looked too ominous. I was like, I don't really want to tempt this fate, <laughs> right? If this place is honestly haunted, if I open that door, I'm afraid of what's in there. And I think a number of other people were too, because I don't think any of us molested the freezer. I'm somebody who's not usually freaked out by the idea of ghosts or spirits, and even I did yeah. not want to go back there. <laughs> yeah, that is the experience that I had, which was the, you know what, let's just stay sensibly away. There were other parts of the hotel that were just fine, right? Like yeah. you walk back into the room that used to, where it's the sunken bar, where there's the big window that looks out in underwater in the pool. Mm -hmm. That seemed fine. Yep. You know, we went out to the pool, we walked around the grounds, we saw where part of the apartments burned down. Mm -hmm. All of the, you know, horrible history of the Brookdale. <laughs> but that all seemed good. Uh, it's been an interesting one to research. Well, I feel like the Brookdale is just always going to be a little bit of a mystery, yeah. right? Because when folklore and historical fact begin to blend mm -hmm. so completely, the truth is something you had to be there for. Yeah. Right? And I think that's what makes it such a compelling location, is that it is, it's got all sorts of rumors and folklore and mystery. And if you're lucky, you will have an experience that unnerves you. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I don't think that if the Brookdale is haunted and we continue, the people are going to continue to have the experiences that we've had, mm -hmm. right? Because it does have such a rich history and it is enshrouded in so much mystery that 
ghosts are absolutely believable. Matt Grau's experience is much less, well, specific is the word I suppose you would use, than Badger's. It's more of a sense that something was wrong than a particular event. Nonetheless, it is fairly typical of what people report in places with a reputation for being haunted, and I think that that makes it worth noting. I myself had a strange experience at the Brookdale Lodge. Shortly after sunset on one of the nights that I stayed there, I went into the Brook Room with my camera. I had done this a few times over the course of the weekend of our con, but the lights had been on and this time the room was dark. The Brook Room is built on a slope and the back of the room is at a higher elevation than the front. Using my flashlight, I made my way uphill towards the back of the room. I took out my camera and began taking photos. I followed my usual habit of taking multiple photos in quick succession so that I can go through them later and keep the best of the bunch. I stood near a railing at the rear of the room and I pointed my camera towards the front. Later, when I looked at the photos, I saw that one was simply the room, dark and empty. In the photo taken immediately afterwards, however, many elements were obscured by a strange white mist that seemed to come out of nowhere. Commentary While I have visited several of the locations that have been featured in these episodes, I have a bit of a special relationship with the Brookdale Lodge because it is the one allegedly haunted location where I have had a weird experience. Now, my experience was not unexplainable. In fact, I think that there is a pretty straightforward explanation. It was a cold night, the humidity in the air was just right, and my breath was visible. I feel rather certain that I simply breathed out while taking the photo and the flash reflected off of my breath. But it was eerie at the moment, and it did creep me out, even as I sorted out what actually happened. This experience helped to endear the Brookdale Lodge to me. A brief coda to my story about the photographs. Shortly after I posted them to my old ghost story blog, I was contacted by Aubrey Graves, who was working on a book on the Brookdale Lodge and wanted to use my photos in her book. I declined as I was pretty sure that the photos showed something mundane, and she made it clear that she thought that they showed something supernatural and wanted to use them as evidence. But I will say that she was gracious and friendly, so I bear no ill will over the matter. She did complete her book on the Brookdale. In fact, she completed two, one on the history and one on the ghost stories. I have used both as sources in this episode, and my old blog post is even quoted in the book on ghost stories. So it all goes around in a cycle. As I mentioned, in both December 2009 and 2010, I had the good fortune to attend a role-playing game mini-convention hosted at the Brookdale Lodge. The games all had a horror theme, so placing them in a haunted hotel was appropriate. The lodge, however, was in poor repair. The guest rooms, which are in a separate building from the rest of the facilities, were actually relatively nice, if a bit strange in their setup and beginning to show their age. The rest of the lodge, though, including the lobby, dance floor, and meeting room, which is called the log cabin because it is, well, in a log cabin attached to the rest of the building, was in a bad state. Parts of the ceiling had collapsed in, many of the light fixtures were broken, and we were experiencing extremely heavy rains, so leaks in the roof resulted in soaked floors in much of the establishment. Add to this that, due to the storms, the power kept going out, 
And quite literally, half of the time that we were gaming, it was under candlelight or battery-powered lanterns. You can imagine that the eeriness of the place really began to get to us. For any other event, this would have been disastrous. For a horror game convention, this was perfect. And we all had a blast. In fact, when power was restored, most of the players clamored for the lights to be turned back off, as we'd worked out a tremendous sense of atmosphere with the candles and battery-powered lanterns. In between evening games, and after gaming had been completed for the evening, around 1 a.m., we would go exploring the lodge. Exploring the mermaid room was especially unnerving. The pool was closed, as was the bar in the room, and the floor was covered in water, not from the pool, but from multiple leaks in the roof. With the lights out, the room had a truly creepy atmosphere. As I mentioned earlier, the general consensus was that everyone who entered the room kept expecting to hear a thud from the glass wall and to see a corpse bouncing up against it. A couple of teenage girls had been brought to the lodge by the mother of one of them as a birthday gift. They wanted to spend the night in a haunted hotel. They claimed to have heard the spectral party in the mermaid room, as well as to have heard a crash without a source in the room adjacent that contains a stage and a dance floor. However, given that one of my fellow gamers had decided to sneak around the place and jump out at these girls and generally make noise, it is open to discussion just how much of these stories that the girls told were their imaginations, ghosts, or rowdy gamers. Before I get too deep into the discussion, I want to talk about the history of the Brookdale Lodge. As noted, Aubrey Graves wrote two books on the lodge, one focused on the supernatural and a shorter book focused on the history. I do recommend getting them if you find this story interesting. They are self-published, and as a result, there are some minor formatting and editing issues, but Miss Graves' writing is quite enjoyable, and the subject is great. While Miss Graves and I have some rather different ideas regarding the paranormal, her book on the history of the Lodge shows a real commitment to digging up available and reliable information and putting it into a coherent narrative. The resulting book is quite well-researched. The alleged history of the location begins centuries ago when, according to the stories, an Ohlone village once stood at the site of the lodge. The Ohlone were the ethno-linguistic group who lived in this area prior to European contact, and it is claimed that this village was complete with a cemetery and that artifacts are still found there to this day. That is not impossible, but I'm not inclined to believe it. I used to work in Santa Cruz County, and I have access to a lot of the archaeological data for that area as a result. I have checked, and there is no recorded archaeological site, village, or otherwise at the location of the Brookdale Lodge. The lodge itself is recorded as a historic resource, but there is no archaeological site recorded there. There are archaeological sites in the general area, but nothing at or immediately near the Brookdale Lodge. My guess is that this story of the Ohlone village in the cemetery is a later addition to the local folklore, a reversion to the old built-on-an-Indian-burial-ground trope. I also found a reference to a historic-age cemetery at or near this location, as opposed to the prehistoric one allegedly associated with the Ohlone village. But again, in looking through the archaeological and historic data that I have, I found no evidence. By the 1890s, the Grover family had obtained the land, likely purchasing it in the 1870s, and had built a cottage there as a vacation home. 
The Grovers owned the Grover Lumber Mill Company, and though local legends hold that the mill and associated lumber camp were located where the lodge now stands, it appears that they were actually a short distance away to the north. Judge James Harvey Logan, that is J.H. Logan, bought an adjacent parcel of land, and by the late 1890s, he and the Grover family began developing camping grounds, finally opening the Logan Camp in 1901. In 1903, Logan bought out the Grovers and began converting their cottage into a hotel by adding 40 rooms, which must have looked pretty strange. Logan also bought most of the surrounding land, making himself the owner of the small town of Brookdale, and then changed the name of his business to the Brookdale Hotel in 1908. Part of the development of the hotel was the construction of several log cabins as guest cottages, as well as one for Judge Logan's own personal use. The hotel's lobby was set in a log cabin that is still standing and has been incorporated into the current structure as the aptly named Log Cabin Room. In 1911, Logan sold the hotel to a local lawyer named William Adelet, who, in turn, leased it to one Mrs. Fairley, who obtained a liquor license for the hotel. However, in 1922, the property was bought by Dr. Foster Kendrick Camp, a physician who was also a Seventh-day Adventist clergyman. Dr. Camp vocally endorsed the prohibition of alcohol. He also greatly expanded the hotel, adding more rooms, condominiums, and recreation areas, including a tennis court. He was responsible for the construction of the Brook Room. He also renamed the hotel the Brookdale Lodge in 1924. The lodge wasn't quite yet what it would become, but it was well on its way. According to a lot of local lore, it was during this period that the Mafia began using the Brookdale Lodge as a hideout and a base for criminal activities. Well, I suppose this is possible in that it could occur without breaking any fundamental law of physics. It strikes me as very unlikely. For one thing, Dr. Camp was very vocal in his prohibitionist stances, and it's difficult to see him allowing gangsters who became wealthy off of vice and corruption to operate on his property. While some would respond by stating that they don't see how Dr. Camp would be able to stand up to organized crime, I would simply point out that these criminals would be well away from their bases in power in the Midwest and on the East Coast as well as San Francisco, and local law enforcement would be able to cause them considerable trouble. It would be easier and more cost-effective for them to buy other property in the area than to deal with a hostile landowner. If you combine that with the fact that some of the specific organized crime figures cited appear to have never even visited, for example, Al Capone is often cited as a regular patron, but I could find nothing to indicate that he had any interest in any part of California north of Los Angeles, it all begins to smell like myth-making rather than history. Now, of course, it's possible that Dr. Camp may have been open to some degree of corruption himself and allowed this, but it seems more likely that these stories are simply false. Incidentally, most local legends indicate that there are tunnels underneath the lodge used by gangsters. Some of the sources I read did discuss maintenance tunnels or hallways, so I would expect that these are what many have termed crime tunnels, but they appear from what I've read, to simply be maintenance access routes common to many large buildings. I suppose you could commit a crime in them if you were so inclined, but that doesn't mean that they were built for that purpose or that such things were even common. One interesting note about Dr. Camp. 
Frequent listeners may remember that most of the mythology about Sarah Winchester and her odd obsessions were, in fact, false. And specifically, she had no particular interest in the number 13. By contrast, Dr. Camp does appear to have had a special interest in the number 13, which is not very important, but it does make for a fun comparison. Anyway, Dr. Camp sold the property in 1946, and it was sold again in 1951, and then again in 1952, and again in 1960. In 1960, it was purchased by Gordon Anderson and Michael Waldron, who owned it until 1965. Anderson and Waldron further expanded the hotel, including the creation of the mermaid room, allowing diners and drinkers to watch swimmers in the pool from below the surface of the water. After 1965, ownership changed hands on a semi-regular basis and continued to change hands somewhat regularly through to today. In the first decade of the 21st century, parts of the lodge fell into disrepair and the hotel began to lose much of its luster. Fires broke out in various buildings, resulting in arson investigations in 2010. The lodge closed and many folks, myself included, wondered if this was the end and if it was permanently closed. But in 2015, the Brookdale Lodge was purchased by Pravin Patel, who proceeded to invest a significant amount of money into renovating it. When I visited briefly in 2022, it looked as if quite a lot of progress had been made and the lodge is once again open and welcoming guests. While much is made in casual local conversation and in paranormal circles about the Brookdale Lodge having been a world-renowned resort location, this appears, like much that surrounds the Lodge, to be more mythology than fact. It's not a lie so much as an exaggeration. To be clear, the Brookdale Lodge is a prominent entertainment area in Santa Cruz County and routinely hosts concerts and other events. It has been a pretty great venue for those who enjoy country, jazz, rock, and blues. Its facilities, when in good repair, are impressive and one could arrange a vacation where one never needs to leave the grounds. And it does attract visitors from across the country and even across the globe. That much is true. But in doing my research, I found no evidence that it was ever the household name that it is often portrayed as having been in its heyday. It wasn't unknown but neither was it a high-profile playground for the rich and famous, though it did have some notable visitors. Okay, so with the Lodge's history addressed, let's get back to talking about ghosts. I have already alluded to my doubts regarding the Brookdale Lodge being a focal point for organized crime. Much of what you will hear is that the place was a hideout or a safe house and that the tunnels were built for the purpose of committing crimes. And as already stated, I very much doubt all of that. The ownership during the 1930s and 1940s, when this is said to have occurred, doesn't seem compatible with that use. Similarly, there are stories of the walk-in refrigerator being used to torture and kill people without their screams being heard. And... Again, this all sounds more like a very dramatic bit of folklore than something that actually happened. However, the notion that criminals would have stayed at the lodge at various points while engaged in criminal activity is not far-fetched, but it would likely have been more low-key than the stories suggest. It would likely have been someone renting a room while on an errand or using a room or a rented apartment as a place to lay low. 
When I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz, Allison Galloway, the forensic anthropology professor from whom I took a few classes, would often talk about bodies being dumped in the forests of the Santa Cruz Mountains, sometimes by Bay Area-based criminal organizations. So that someone from such an organization may have stayed at the Brookdale Lodge is likely, but it's also perfectly possible that they simply used whatever hotels and apartments were convenient at the time, and the Brookdale Lodge was just one of many. So if that's the case, what's the story with so many people sharing stories of violent criminals and murder victims at this spot? Well, first off, there's the allure of the dark history of a once popular and glamorous location, which again plays into some of the mythology of this having been a glamorous resort. What's more, stories of ties between the entertainment industry and celebrities and major figures of organized crime are a significant part of the lore of Hollywood. And with celebrities being connected to the Brookdale Lodge, whether in fact or in folklore, it doesn't take much for the criminals to follow along. That alone would put this place into legend land, even without the ghost story aspect. Likely, many of the Gangland era stories are exaggerations or fabrication. Nonetheless, it makes for a creepy story even if you don't think that the dead are returning. The creation and sharing of crime-related stories at the Brookdale Lodge are steeped in the fact that the sharing of creepy stories is an inherently social activity. Many people like both spinning and hearing a good spooky yarn, and violent crime provides a lot of fodder for this type of storytelling. The experiences described are typically vague and could be explained by a number of different non-ghostly sources. However, it does make for a good story to tell your friends, or for that matter, your date when you are winding your way up Highway 9. In fact, I highly recommend doing so. Regardless, these stories are typical of places that have a reputation, deserved or not, for violence and shady characters. These crime-related spooky tales are interesting both in the fact that we often turn perceived evil into entertainment, and also because they often reflect two different notions. One, we assume that places where dirty deeds were done may retain a taint from those deeds. Or, perhaps, when we find a place that we believe to be tainted, we tend to try to find events to which we may attach the alleged taint. And two, we see this as consequences of bad action, to feel like some justice is done, or, at the very least, like the horrid deed is marked and noted. This is something that we have seen in action before. For example, in Haunted Heritage, Michelle Hanks cited a case where an uneasy feeling for some paranormal investigators were quickly spun into a story about an alleged rapist's ghost hanging out in a place that was otherwise quite mundane. Historian Taya Miles also reconstructs how the stories of the haunted LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans grew over time to include a range of activities aside from the more mundane violence of a slave owner in order to explain what people claimed to experience. Even in a place where evil was done, such as the LaLaurie Mansion, what really occurred is typically not enough, and so more is created. It allows us to let our ghastly imaginations run wild and create a cheap thrill. Unlike the LaLaurie Mansion, where making Delphine LaLaurie into an inhuman monster allows people to tell themselves that they would never have been so cruel, such a distancing is unlikely to be necessary here. Any of us, were we born into the right social class and the right time or place, have the potential to be brutal slaveholders. But very few of us have the potential to be mobsters. And as such, we don't need a way of sealing ourselves off from those claimed to have committed these crimes. 
But the desire to see the blood and violence, even if in a metaphorical sense, is still strong. And so we create and share stories. But of course, there are non-crime stories at the Brookdale Lodge. Another type of story involves the general bumps in the night that tend to be associated with most historic buildings. This includes such vague things as the sounds of footsteps, screams, scratching on the walls, or solitary voices, which could be any of a range of mundane things. But it also includes more specific manifestations of the ghostly, such as the sounds of diners and unseen people in rooms having conversations. Usually, these stories are creepy because they are unnatural, but have little menace implied in them. However, as the story of Room 46 shows, even these stories can take on more disturbing aspects. Some of these stories likely originate as people misinterpreting mundane noises, but some may have been weirder and less easily explained. In the book Would You Believe, skeptical paranormal investigator Matthew Baxter describes encountering the sounds of a ghostly dinner party at a rather different hotel in Colorado. He is someone who is clear that he does not accept ghosts as an answer, but his experience does demonstrate that even someone not primed to see spirits everywhere can have an unexplained encounter with these types of sounds. That suggests that at least some portion of these stories might be based on people's actual experiences, whether one is ready to attribute those experiences to ghosts or not. But regardless of what sparks the stories, the tales take on a life of their own in the telling and in being incorporated into the tapestry of local ghost folklore. It is unlikely in the extreme that the stories that one hears from a local have not been embellished and modified by many different tellers along the way, not to mention details changed or dropped due simply to the nature of human memory. Again, like the stories of ghosts resulting from crime, these tales are also part of a social system in which the stories are generated, shared, and modified by those who tell them. The most well-known ghost of the Brookdale Lodge, indeed the one that most people seem to want to meet, is that of Sarah Logan, the little girl who drowned in the creek and now haunts the Brook Room. While the stories of eerie sounds point to the more violent aspects of the folklore surrounding the Brookdale Lodge, the story of Sarah is typical of another type of ghost story. Children who die early are often the subjects of ghost stories and are usually either pitiable, sometimes Sarah is seen crying for her mother, or else cute and charming. Sarah is also often said to be interacting with people in a very friendly manner. The deeper cultural meaning of these stories is not always clear, but likely results from the fact that most adults view the death of a child as a heartbreaking event, even if they do not know the child. In a way, the presence of the ghost, while unnatural, is also reassuring. It lets us think that she will remain an idealized, pure, innocent child for eternity, and perhaps her untimely death was not the end of her story. Sarah has brought a lot of visitors to the Brookdale Lodge and is very similar to Annie, another child ghost said to haunt Mary King's Close in Scotland, in that people who come to visit Sarah wish to interact and even play with her. A difference is that Sarah is in a beautiful, huge room located in a pine forest, whereas Annie is within what amounts to a gigantic basement underneath Edinburgh. Sarah is not the only apparition of a drowned girl. As mentioned in the story section of this episode, the ghost of a 13-year-old girl who drowned in the pool is said to appear as a body floating face down or sometimes a standing apparition with her hair wet dripping water over her face 
In this latter form, she seems reminiscent of Sadako, the drowned ghost who haunts videotapes in the film Ring. I have to wonder if the description of the ghost doesn't post-date the release of that movie. The contrast between the two ghosts is interesting. Sarah is portrayed as appearing as a normal child, likely around six years old, usually cheerful, sometimes sad, but not frightening or unnerving, and often a welcome spirit. The 13-year-old girl, on the other hand, seems much darker. Whether she appears as a body floating in a pool or appears before you drenched and glaring, she is frightening and not a subject of pity or of joy. My guess is the difference is the age. In contemporary American culture, we think of six-year-olds as being pure and innocent. Though, as any parent can tell you, that ain't necessarily so. While we are more ambiguous about children in their early teens, parents often dread the middle school age. The changes in body and behavior brought on by puberty seem intimidating or unnerving. This is also an age in which some cultures mark a transition from childhood to adulthood, though this is far from universal with many cultures marking it much later. 13-year-olds are undoubtedly still children, but are beginning to resemble adults physically and psychologically and are beginning to take on some adult traits. Not just in terms of a growing interest in sex, but also a growing interest in the social world, politics, interests outside of the home, and pulling away from parents and towards an outside social group. 13-year-olds are, simply, more worldly than 6-year-olds, but considerably less so than an adult or even an older teenager. And this ambiguity seems rather apt for a creepy or unnerving apparition rather than a joyous one. Aubrey Graves tried to find any information on Sarah Logan and could not find any evidence that Judge Logan had a daughter or niece named Sarah, nor that any girl of that age had died either in or near the Brook Room or in the creek at this location prior to the construction of the Brook Room. Similarly, she could not confirm the death of a 13-year-old in the swimming pool in 1972. However, she did discover multiple instances of people, primarily young women, drowning in the nearby San Lorenzo River over the course of the 20th century. It is possible that these drownings were mythologized into the stories of Sarah and the girl in the swimming pool, but the origins of these stories are unclear. The other apparitions often mentioned are those that an employee is said to have experienced in room 46. As described in the first section of this episode, these apparitions ranged from unnerving, seeing a person staring at you, to frightening, such as the man with his eye hanging out of his head or others showing signs of violence. Other apparitions reported in the room include people dancing and people walking and talking. As these are all reported to have been the experiences of just one person and they all come second or third hand, it is open to question what underlies these stories. Regardless of what the woman who was said to have had these experiences did or did not actually experience, the fact is that these stories have become an embedded part of the lore surrounding the Brookdale Lodge and are often told. There is a point that I've been dancing around in this discussion, and that is the logical extension of the social nature of these stories. The Brookdale Lodge is easily accessible and doesn't shy away from its haunted reputation, or at least it didn't. I cannot speak to how the current ownership views this aspect of the property. As a result, people have been visiting this spot hoping to have an encounter with the spirits for quite a while. While this often takes the form of legend tripping, people visiting the location and engaging in prescribed behavior to make contact with a spirit, 
such as requesting a particular hotel room or hanging out in the brook room, this has led to other forms of ostention aside from legend tripping. Ostention is a term used by folklorists to describe people taking actions above and beyond simply telling stories in order to take part and possibly develop a given legend. By holding a horror game convention at the Brookdale Lodge, the group that I was with were arguably engaged in ostention by adding our own stories and experiences of the games we played and our interactions with each other to the legends surrounding the lodge. It was important that we were in essence engaged in the communal telling of horror stories in a place reputed to be haunted by a wide range of spirits. And for our group, including people who joined it after we stopped holding the event at the Brookdale Lodge, stories of the Brookdale Lodge and our experiences there remain important. Aubrey Graves' book on the hauntings of the Brookdale Lodge likewise describes multiple cases of ostention. Throughout the book, she describes visits to the location by paranormal investigators, including a number of psychic mediums. Many of these mediums had specific interactions with particular spirits in which they confirmed identities or introduced additional elements to the story of spirits long said to have inhabited the property. She also recounts a dramatic instance in which one of these mediums claimed to have identified an evil spirit that was feeding off of innocent spirits, including those of children. This medium then carried out a ritual to free the innocent spirits from the evil one and allow them to pass on to the afterlife. This particular episode included not just the introduction of the evil spirit, but also the ghost of a previous resident who stayed behind to protect the ghosts of children from the evil spirits. While I am sure that people will argue endlessly about whether the mediums truly had psychic abilities and whether they were, in fact, engaged in some form of combat with evil spirits, what is clear is that the experiences of the mediums made their way into the legend of the Brookdale Lodge. So, again, the mediums and the author Aubrey Graves engaged in ostention, visiting the lodge, acting out aspects of the legend, and writing their own experiences into the legends. But not all people engaged in ostention at the Brookdale Lodge are psychic mediums or tabletop gamers who've had too much caffeine and or alcohol. As I mentioned, there was a pair of teenage girls staying at the hotel with their mother during one of our conventions, hoping to encounter ghosts. Similarly, I have known a number of people who lived in the Bay Area who would go to the Brookdale Lodge for a drink, to hear a band perform, for a meal at the Brook Room, or even just to hang out in the parking lot, and most of these folks knew the story and expressed an interest in having a ghostly encounter. Some even claimed to have seen the ghost of Sarah. All of them either added to the legend or at least kept it going. By the early 2000s, the legend of the Brookdale Lodge, and I must imagine its increasingly deteriorating facilities, made it the ideal location for a publicity stunt used for the North American release of the video game Fatal Frame. Video game reviewers were invited to the lodge and put up for a night, during which they were told ghost stories by the owner and a local described as a historian. They were then set loose on a scavenger hunt, which ran through rooms that appeared to have been intentionally set up to be as creepy as possible. Finally, when all was said and done, the reviewers were provided with a PlayStation and a copy of the game. If you were curious about the game, go back to episode 18 on the Himuro Mansion urban legend that involves Fatal Frame. The Brookdale Lodge is a strange place, a hotel and a haunted house wrapped up together, a still-running business that was, when I last patronized it, also a deteriorating husk, though again the new ownership appears to have turned it around. 
The place is a focus of local lore and has been featured on various paranormal TV shows and is an ideal legend tripping spot for both the adventurous who wish to explore it and the lazy who just want to sit in the brook room and hope they see something. It is also a vital part of Santa Cruz County folklore, and its legend, like all good haunted house legends, is more social than paranormal. It is a real, physical place that nonetheless exists largely in legend. If you are in the area, book a room, look around, have dinner in the brook room, and who knows, maybe you'll have a ghostly encounter, or more likely, you'll just have a pleasant weekend. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!